0: That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village, and I got to hang out with one of my heroes, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She is the co-author of one of my favorite books, The Whole Brain Child, and has authored and co-authored many books beyond that that we dive into in this episode we got to chat about risk management. And y'all, this is something I feel really passionate about because we get to teach kids what it looks like to listen to their inner voice and to cultivate that and to lean on it to say, like, do I feel safe in this situation? And how do I navigate risk? How do I make this call for myself to say, hey, I need help or I'm going to be brave and I can take a risk here? Looking at how to help foster that voice and support it. I am so grateful for the opportunity to get to dive into this conversation with someone that I have so much respect and love for. Uh, Dr. Tina payne Bryson is someone that I truly like we mentioned her in our book and quote her because her work has been so influential in the work that I get to do. So check out Tiny Humans Big Emotions to also see her featured in there. All right, folks, let's dive in. Hey there, I'm Alyssa Blass Campbell. I'm a mom with a master's degree in early childhood education and co-creator of the collaborative emotion processing method. I'm here to walk alongside you through the messy, vulnerable parts of being humans raising other humans with deep thoughts and actionable tips. Let's dive in together. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Voices of Your Village. You know, on this podcast, I have had the opportunity to connect with humans that I have such deep respect for and some of my own personal heroes in the early ed world. And today I get to bring another one of them on to hang out. And what a dream. I get to hang out with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. You might know her as the author of Bottom Line for Baby or the co-author with Dan Siegel of two New York Times bestsellers, one of my most recommended books, The Whole Brain Child, and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 50 languages casual. She also wrote with Dan The Yes Brain and Power of Showing Up. She's the founder and executive director, Director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. Dr. Bryson keynotes, conferences, and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world, and she frequently consults with schools, businesses, and other organizations. She is a licensed social worker, a graduate of Baylor University with a PhD from USC. But the most important part of her bio, she says, is that she's a mom to her three boys. And I'm excited to get to dive in today to talk about risk management and risk assessment, because I'm on that earlier end of the spectrum with a toddler and a literal growing baby inside my body right now. And she has three relatively grown boys. And we're going to look at what risk management and assessment looks like across the board and in different ages and stages and what our role is as parents, teachers, and caregivers. So welcome, Tina.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad you said relatively grown, because even though my boys are 23, 20, and 16, we know that the brain doesn't finish developing, particularly that prefrontal cortex until the mid to late twenties, particularly in boys. So, um, it's, uh, it's, they're relatively grown. And you know what? I think we could even say parents are relatively grown too, because boy, our kids are sure an opportunity for us to keep, um, finding insight and opportunities for reflection and growth. Um, And when they become teenagers and young adults, you know, they are kind of, you know, they're, I mean, I think all kids are brilliant in their own ways, but they really know how to call you on stuff. And, um, and there's a, they point, point out hypocrisy and um, all of those things. So it's always an opportunity for us to grow too. Oh, I
0: love that. And I love, I, I feel like it really points to, Like your work is so based in connection, which has always just resonated so much for me. I I get like, I don't see parenting as a job. I see it as an opportunity to be in relationship with somebody, right. To connect with somebody and with all that comes with that, the messiness, the hardness, the challenges, the triggers, the opportunities for growth, um, But to see like, yeah, I'm still in relationship with these humans, whether they're 23 and 20 and 16, or they're two and in utero, it really coming back to like, what does this relationship look like in different contexts? I love that. So risk, (laughs) when I was thinking about this, (laughs) we were brainstorming like risk and talking about it on our team of like, you know, what kind of what comes up for us? We're a team of mostly moms and um with kids across an age spectrum but all all under 10 right now and uh one of the like common threads was this like allowing for risk
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and how freaking hard it is
1: it's so hard i mean i i think it's probably Like, if you were to ask me, like, what are the two hardest things of all of parenting? Well, I guess I would have to say three. Um, One is if your child is suffering and you don't know how to help them, that's probably the hardest one. Um, I think after that, um, it's sibling rivalry, sibling conflict drove me the most crazy in all of the growing up years. But we can talk about that too, because actually by the time my oldest hit about 15 or 16, there has been almost no sibling fighting in our home. And I think it's because of how I handle discipline and an opportunity for learning. The other is managing risk, not just in terms of our kids, but we cannot talk about risk and risk assessment and managing that without talking about parental fear. And there are, There are amazing things about parental fear and there are really awful things about parental fear. And so there's, there's really kind of like a, um, a very healthy parental fear. And then there's a very unhealthy parental fear. So we can kind of parse some of that out as well.
0: I love it. Let's dive right in. Yeah. I think that, like I said, that was the common thread was just like, gosh, I wish I could bubble wrap them and not have them ever have to take a risk. Because risk means like, yeah, sometimes they're going to fail. They're going to drop the ball. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to get hurt, you know, physically, emotionally, whatever that is. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: I think the 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 thing that we need to start with is the idea that what that requires is the ability to sit as parents in discomfort, to sit in the discomfort of our children being in discomfort. <laughs> Uh, which requires a lot of regulation and a lot of internal work and a lot of pausing before action. So let's start, I think it might be helpful to talk about sort of some of the mechanisms of risk, risk assessment, fear, all of these things, because, you know, we hope our kids have kind of um, a little bit of a red light, um, a little Mm -hmm. bit of of healthy fear um, around risk. Um, And we hope that we do too. So let's first start with if we're going to think about risk, we can talk about an impulsive risk kind of moment, which is really, you just do something. You're not really thinking. You're not assessing, you know, what are the options? What's a way I could do this if I were going to do it in a way that, you know, is the the best way to go about it, to minimize risk? Um, it's also thinking about potential consequences, um, not just for yourself, but for others around you. And all of that is housed in the prefrontal cortex. So insight, um, pausing before action, response flexibility, considering consequences, um, problem solving, all of these things are housed in the prefrontal cortex. In connection with, The entire brain and body. Okay. So, um, anytime we really are talking about a part of the brain, we can't just say this particular part just does this. It's much more complex than that. But really, we know that there are certain parts of the brain that give rise to particular things, like we just talked about here. And the prefrontal cortex is that part of the brain here. Um, So, that part of the brain, as we mentioned earlier, doesn't. Finish developing until the mid to late 20s. And typically, um, boys are two years or so behind girls during development um, in terms of those kinds of things. In fact, there are some experts that are arguing that boys should start kindergarten at seven because that would make them much more on par with five year old girls. Um, So I think it's really interesting to know that the part of the brain that really helps you be very smart, thoughtful, responsible around risk assessment and risk decisions is not really fully developed yet. Okay. Now, just like we wrote about in the whole brain child, every moment really is an opportunity, not just to survive the moment, but also sort of the way we handle survive moments can really help our kids thrive because those are all opportunities to lay the foundation for how this brain is built. So, um, you know, we can think about a couple of things here. One is how does the brain get built? Like how how do children learn? Well, we know typically that children learn best in two ways. One, by what they observe. So what we model for them is a huge part of how they learn. And not just us, but their peers and what's modeled for them, other parents, grandparents, et cetera. And the other way that they learn, which is even more powerful is by doing it themselves, okay? So um, this is really important because really all of these risk opportunities are opportunities for them to build skills and to thrive over time, because what happens is it's the repeated experiences that make the brain fire and wire and who they become. So I often talk about just like when I do reps with a weight and I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm lifting weights, I'm doing reps, that muscle gets stronger. That's really how we can think about the prefrontal cortex too. So If we want them to be smart, responsible, thoughtful decision makers around risk or anything, we have to give them opportunities for reps. And I think too, thinking about kind of the whole trajectory of child development unfolding, eventually our kids, like I live in LA, so I think about freeways a lot. It's like your kid is in the lane with you, like in the lane with you, right? And you're maybe in the fast lane, but as they get older, they kind of move over a lane, right? And get a little closer to the exit. And then they move over another lane and eventually they get off on the exit and you're still going down the freeway, but they have a separate life from you. And we want when they exit our freeway, um, when they leave our home to go out into the world, that they are ready to be the kind of people we hope that they become. Um, so that's that's sort of like a, an overall piece around um, how we're thinking about where this happens.
0: Okay. I dig it so much to unpack, And I love, and I have a love hate relationship with the freeway uh, because of course there's a part of me that's like, um, no, I'd love to just be right here in this role in your life forever. Um, And also I want you to have skills. Right. And I think just that acknowledgement, I, I think for myself as a parent of that dichotomy and those different parts that can exist, can coexist. And, and the same thing here with risk management and, and my fear around it of, yeah, I want them to have these skills and I also never want them to get hurt. Like both are true. And, um, I, I also think like risk wise for me, it comes back to like critical thinking skills, right? Like I want them to be able to be a critical thinker and not just always do impulsively and to be able to say, Yeah, what might happen? And is that risk worth it for me? And maybe their gauge for is that risk worth it for me is going to be different than mine or their siblings or their peers or whatever. But for them to develop a gauge of is that risk worth it for me? Does that make sense? That like, I think when we talk about risk management, I, I don't think it's a one size fits all.
1: No, it's not. And we also, not only that, but kids have individual differences. You know, all three of my boys are quite different from each other. Um, And some kids are much more risk seeking and much, and other kids are much more risk averse. And that is baked in, in their genetic inborn temperament. Now that doesn't mean we can't have an impact on that temperament. Um, For example, um, you know, you sort of think about like, two of my kids, and I won't say who because to protect their privacy, but two of my kids were born super automatically, just intrinsically super empathetic. In fact, one of them so much so that I've had to do a lot of of, um, sort of work and getting him reps in thinking about himself um, because he's so such a pleaser and so sacrificial and so, so caring. Um, But one of my boys was not naturally empathetic. He just wasn't when he was, um, you know, two, three, four, but I knew because, you know, I had, I was writing the whole rain child and I was (laughs) studying all of this stuff um, that I knew that if I could give him repeated experiences to fire and wire his brain around empathy, which is also prefrontal, um, that I could really kind of expand his window of what his possibility was given who he is. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I may expand his his window of tolerance and he's actually a super empathetic kid now, but he's still not as empathetic as my kid where I didn't do that work um, because that's who he is. So sure. we, have, we sort of think about like, we have sort of a window of possibility and limits given who we are. Um, and so we want to give, you know, the most around those things. And so some of our kids are naturally risk averse. And, um, and what's interesting about this too, is I think it's really helpful to talk about fit between parent and child. Like I tend to be very risk averse. So I tend to be much more prone to bubble wrap, to protect, to avoid anything that could be, cause any problems anywhere. Um, including like sticky countertops. I don't want anyone to get sticky things on their shirt. You know, like I am I'm a very highly conscientious risk averse sure. person. My husband is like, I think, right in the like normal zone around that. He's not he's not risk seeking. He um, but he's he's much better at that. So it's really helpful that as we co-parent, we can kind of check each other. Um, and sometimes I'm right. Um I like to think I'm right most of the time, but um, medical things, I'm like, we really should get this checked, you know, and often I've been right. There've been times I've been wrong. Um, But, um, but oftentimes what happens is it's a, it's a challenging fit around uh, risk tolerance between parent and child. So if you're a risk averse parent and you have a risk seeking child or a kid who has a wide tolerance for risk. It can be really anxiety producing. And so it's really partly about expanding our own window of tolerance, uh, which is my co-author Dan Siegel's beautiful phrase, our window of tolerance um, around um, trusting your child and trusting them to take risks. I think something we have to talk about here is that Every message we ever give our kids. So if we're wanting to teach, like you were saying, critical thinking skills, and let's get into the specifics on how we do that and how we, that really is every bit a part of kind of even discipline. Um, But I think it's so important to think about how, you know, our children are their own unique people. We are our own unique people. And I think it's just, it's incredible to watch how this unfolds. Um, But every one of these moments is such an opportunity to expand that window. And I think we have to think about, as I mentioned before, the idea of fear. And I, I think this is a really good reality check here. Oftentimes, I say no to something without thinking about it, or even once I've thought about it. In either case, I'm saying no because I can't tolerate the anxiety around it, or I'm too worried or whatever, but, and, and sometimes that's appropriate, but other times I say no to something out of my own internal reactivity that I haven't really thought about as opposed to what is best for my child. So, but it's really hard to miss that because we're like, I don't, I want you to be safe. So no, you can't do that. Yeah. But if i Really honest with myself, and I really reflect, I'm saying no because I'm afraid and I don't want to be a fear based parent. Yeah. So, you know, and really, again, back to mechanism, you know, what's fascinating is once you have a child, your amygdala actually changes. It actually becomes more hypervigilant <laughs> to be watching for potential dangers. It actually Makes sense. Like, changes our brain. And what's kind of interesting is recently they even did a study um, on adoptive parents. Um, so who, where you were not biologically carrying the child through pregnancy and you don't have those hormonal changes, and same-sex dads who were pay, co-parenting together and they found the same result. Sure. Um, whoever was the primary caregiver also had these amygdala changes. So our brains change to be more fear-oriented. Um, including there's also this really fascinating study done that the smell of the top of babies' heads, like you know, the mm-hmm. smell. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I love it. Like start wanting more babies. Um, That smell is actually like they've broke down the chemical components, chemical components of it. And actually it's interesting. It makes male brains less aggressive to be more, you know, to keep their kids safe from their own aggression, but it makes female brains more aggressive. So to make us more protective, right. So we have these biological mechanisms, but when it comes down to it, Fear is really important because it's an emotion and we should listen to our emotions because they carry a ton of important information, but they do not get to make the decision.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. Visit BetterHelp.com voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, voices.
3: Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.
1: So fear, what fear actually is, is my brain and my nervous system saying, hey, something important is happening here. Pay attention. That's truly what fear is. To protect us, to keep us and our young safe. But emotions are not necessarily right. They're not rational. Um, they're important, like I said, and they're an important source of information. But if we really, really want to be thoughtful, intentional parents, our fears don't get to make the call. They might. We might say, yes, this is, you know, I actually did a, um, a long video post on Instagram Um, about the article that came out about how a lot of parents are not letting their kids go on sleepovers. And I did a whole- Yeah, I want to talk about it. Yeah, okay, good. So yeah, yeah, so what happens though is we just, we I really need to ask myself the honest truth. Am I saying no here? Because I feel too uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's still a good decision for my kid to take this risk, to have this opportunity. Am I saying no truly in my child's best interest or am I saying no because of my own internal chaos?
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes that's hard to parse out. Right. And I I was, I was watching your video post and it was in response to the article in the Atlantic and was about sleepovers and how, um, if folks haven't read it yet, it was about how some parents don't allow their kids to participate in sleepovers. And, I was watching and it really comes back to, um, there were two big topics that were coming up and I read through your comments too, to see like, what were, what, what was the response or reaction for folks? And there were two big topics. One was sexual assault and one was pornography and this like exposure to, or potential exposure to, um, that, that risk. And I, so I'm a sexual assault survivor, very openly talked about it on this podcast. And I was raped when I was 14. And so I was thinking about like, for my thinking ahead, right? Like for my tiny humans, what does this look like for us? And it's interesting, like as up from the lens of a sexual assault survivor, I don't think it's actually my job to prevent sexual assault for my kids. I, which like might be a dicey thing to say, what I do think is that it's my job to make sure that whatever happens, whatever trauma might happen in their life or whatever hard experiences happen in their life, that they have a safe space to turn to with that for support. And for like, when I look back to like 14 year old Alyssa, I actually wouldn't change what happened. I would, I wish I could change what happened in response, like who I had to turn to after and what that looked like. And so when I think about this for my own kids, what comes up for me is like, I want to have a relationship of trust and connection where if anything happens for them or to them, that they can then turn and say like, I need to talk about this. This happened. I don't know what to do next, whatever. And then we can navigate it together from there. Yeah. Because when I think about the idea of like, I'm going to prevent these hard things from happening, that feels too overwhelming for me as a parent. Yeah. Uh, because it can happen in so many different circumstances yeah. that it, it would be one thing that was like prescriptive. When kids go here, this happens. And if they don't go there, that doesn't happen. But the, we know right. that's not real life. That's right. And so when I think about it, I was like, mm, I think for me, it, it's less about making sure this doesn't happen to them and more about making sure they have a safe space for it afterward if it does ever happen. And of course, trying to like create safe spaces for them wherever I can. Of
4: course,
0: um, yes. And like, that's where the risk assessment comes in. I feel like so much of parenthood is just risk assessment. Like, Yeah. Are they climbing up too high? Should they have that thing? What are we doing medically? What are they eating? Like, and really trying to figure out like, what is the risk assessment here? I was just at my best friend's, we went over for her birthday um, a few days ago and she has a four-year-old and a one-year-old. The kids are all playing in the backyard and there was a little like kiddie pool out And the one-year-old was carrying around a muffin and then got into the pool and it like submerged and she brought it back up and went to take a bite. And my friend like jumped over and was like, oh, that's my line. Apparently that's my line. Like, oh, I can't like this can't happen. And I was like, Oh, so interesting. Like, apparently that's not my line. Like I saw it and I was like, yeah, it's pretty gross. Uh, But if she's into it, go ahead. And just realizing like, yeah, we just had different risk assessment on that. Right. And that that's fine. Like judgment free. Mine isn't necessarily better than hers. It's just different. And I feel like that's so much of parenthood is really looking and saying like, what's the risk I want I'm I'm willing to take care that I feel like is best for their safety and then how do I create space for them to be able to learn what their internal compass says and what is appropriate for them. I don't know about you, but when I scroll through Instagram or I'm tuning into podcasts and diving into parenting resources, resources for myself as a teacher, I can feel overwhelmed like where do I start I need a guide for what this looks like in practice and I don't want something that's one size fits all because every child is different right and like if you have multiple children if you're a teacher you know that it's not one size fits all or if you have seen what works for your sister-in-law or your best friend or your neighbor and you're like oh my gosh th- my child does not respond to that that is how I felt. And then we created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. It is a guide for building emotional intelligence. And y'all, there are five components of the set method. One is about how to respond to the kids and what it looks like to have adult-child interactions. The other four are about us. Because I don't know about you, but I did not grow up getting these tools. I did not grow up with them. I didn't grow up in this household where... I was taught tools for self-awareness and self-regulation and how to do emotion processing work. And now, as a parent and as a teacher, I'm supposed to teach those skills to a tiny human, but we can't teach what we don't know. And so my first book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, is here to support you. You can head to wwwseedandsoorg book and snag tiny humans' big emotions today. This is a game changer. It's going to build these skills with you, for you, so that you can do this work alongside building these skills for your tiny humans so that they can grow up with a skill set for self-awareness, for regulation, for empathy, for social skills, for intrinsic motivation. A skill set of emotional intelligence so that they can navigate all the things that come their way in life snag tiny humans big emotions at slash book
1: it's so important what everything you just said there is so important we want to empower our kids to be safe in whatever spaces they're in. And then we need to be the safe, secure base or secure harbor for them. You know, in the power of showing up, Dan Siegel and I talk about what are one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out on everything we measure them on, including sound decision-making, is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And that has (laughs) nothing to do with attachment parenting. um, But it's really the idea that We talk about, so if that's the most important thing, how do we get them there? And we talk about the four S's, helping them feel safe, helping them feel seen and known, helping them feel soothed and and taken care of and comforted when things get really hard. And finally, that fourth S of secure, which is really where their brains have wired based on lots and lots of reps of feeling safe and seen and soothed, not perfect ones, but enough predictable repeated experiences where their brain wires to know that if I have a need, They're going to see it and see me and show up for me. And what I love about the attachment science is what you just said is that we create this secure base for them so that whatever risks they go and do or whatever ventures they go out or whatever happens to them. I mean, some of the things in our children's lives we can control and some of them we cannot control. And that feels really uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it's true and it's unavoidable. But whatever happens, we want them to be able to come back into, we sort of in the book talk about sort of like the safe harbor that they go out into the world into the stormy seas, but they come back into our safe harbor. But you know what's interesting about the attachment literature is it's not just a secure base, it's also a launching pad. So this kind of leads into this idea is that when they know they are safe enough they can go out and move toward autonomy. And I think our society has that wrong. A lot of times that we, we, um, we, we do a lot of fear-based things like don't let them sleep in your bed with you. If they do, they'll never sleep on their own. And that's not true. (laughs) I promise you, if you let your kids sleep in your bed with you occasionally, or most nights, wherever the most people get the most amount of sleep is what I'm in favor of. Um, (laughs) of course, safely, of course, do it safely. Um, but you know, I promise they're not going to be sleeping with you when they're 12 or 13. And if they are, you need to call me because something else is going on and we got to figure that out. But I think that, you know, we do this fear based thing. If I do this event and where our brains go is like they're going to live in a van down by the river and never amount to anything. And it's silly. It really is. We, I think um, we, we really want them to feel safe and secure with us and that that when they feel safe enough they do take steps towards autonomy and we unfortunately sometimes prematurely push autonomy particularly with our firstborns because they you know if especially if they're very verbal or they're extra tall or whatever and they seem older emotionally keep in mind too development is not linear um and it's also not symmetrical. It's not in symmetry with each other. So meaning your child might have, this is really common. Here's an example. Your child might have a huge um, new resurgence of separation anxiety, going to the bathroom by themselves, falling asleep by themselves when they're about four five, even six. And parents are like, oh my gosh, what's happening? There's a regression, like something bad must be happening at school. And it stokes all of our fears, but it's, it seems like a regression, but actually what's happened is their emotional development hasn't yet had a burst, but their cognitive development has just had a huge burst, which allows them to imagine scarier things and bigger, scarier monsters, or even bad things happening to their parents. And they don't yet have the emotional regulation skills to match that yet. So all of this comes together. And so every time we have these opportunities to help them launch, this is back kind of to the freeway thing, like, um, I saw, so as a clinician, one time I had a a parent, um, a couple came to me because their 16, their 17 year old daughter, they had been spying on her. They were observing, they were logging into all of her accounts and reading all of her stuff. And she didn't know that this was happening. And I think that's a whole other topic, but I think, you know, the way we've handled it at our house is the devices belong to us. We pay for the devices. We own the devices. They're yours to use freely, but we can check them at any point. Like, that's our property, and we will we will respect your privacy, but from time to time, we may check on them and we'll tell you we're doing that. you know, and so it's very open as opposed to like this secretive thing. But they found out that she had been dating, and she had been forbidden to date until college. And so they were freaked out and and this leads back to that different line of aversion in us. It has so much to do with our own experiences and how our brains have been wired and what traumas we've had and how we were parented. So we have all this implicit memory that impacts implicit and explicit memory that impacts all of our decision-making. It impacts our emotions. It impacts how we perceive things, how we feel, how we respond. And sometimes we don't even know that that's Working on us, um, we wrote a whole chapter about that implicit and explicit memory in the whole range child that kind of talks about that more. But what happens is, um, and this mom had this mom had had a family member or maybe herself had got, gotten pregnant as a teenager, so she was terrified, and so that's why they had forbidden her to date. Well, forbidding our teenagers to do things is often very counterproductive. Um, there are certainly edges where we have hard nose for sure in adolescence. And we know they likely will violate those. And then we have to have a safe space to have conversation and use it as a skill building moment. But I said to the parents, do you want her her first dating experiences to be when she's away from you, when you have no voice and you have no ability to kind of see what's happening and weigh in? No, we want to give our kids opportunities to have autonomy in lots of spaces of life when it's developmentally appropriate and safe enough so that when they do leave us, they've had lots of practice doing it. Obviously there'd be some exceptions to that around like drinking and things like that. Sure. Although that's a controversial thing that probably is for another whole time, but, sure. um, well, and I, if you I,
0: are interested in that, we had Jess Leahy on to talk yeah. about the addiction inoculation. Say, Jess Leahy, yeah. yeah.
1: She's yeah. one of my very favorite people. I recommend her book all the time. She's um, awesome.
0: She's a local and- Vermonter here.
1: Yeah, she's awesome. And just by the way, in her book, the science is clear that you do tell your teenagers and adolescents absolutely no on substance use um, until you're of age, um, knowing they likely will violate that. So um, that's an exception. And obviously we have certain lines. Um, Okay, so so one other thing I want to say before we get into like the, what do we do? How do we get them there? How do we handle this with our own emotions and with our kids? Um, And building those critical thinking skills. One other kind of big thinking idea is that, and actually I started to say this earlier and then I couldn't remember. So I kind of faked it. So hopefully nobody notices that I missed it. Okay, but I remembered it. So I'm coming back. Here's something really important. Everything we ever do or say, we don't have to be perfect. So don't let this put pressure on you. But it's something really important to be aware of has a hidden implicit message, okay? This is human. So let me give an example. Okay, I live in Pasadena, California. It doesn't ever get that cold. I mean, it might be in the 40s or something in the winter, in the middle of the night, right? Or whatever, it doesn't get that cold here. Um, And I didn't know this until later, but kids have more brown fat than adults, which is actually, it's not the kind of fat that gives us weight. It's the kind of fat that actually insulates us. It's like what ducks have and whales have and all this stuff. Okay, so um, so kids actually tend to run warm more warmly than adults do. I'm very cold natured. So it's, it, I don't even know. My kid was like five or six at the time. And I was like, Hey B, you need to take your jacket. Um, And he was like, I don't need it, mom. And I was like, Benjamin, you need to, you need your jacket, take your jacket, mom. I don't need it. And I just kept pushing, pushing. And then later I was like, okay, that was so dumb. First of all, who cares? Like, is that really like the hill to die on? Like <laughs> sure. dumb. Some of the more important things that I want to save my voice for. Second of all, if he were cold, he wouldn't get dangerously cold. You know, obviously if we were going to the mountains and we were going to be outside, I would insist on it, but this was not going to be the situation. If he got cold, that would be a teeny tiny little natural consequence that would kind of help him know his body more and kind of judge the wet, the weather more. So he would get a rep of trying to make decisions around that for himself without any actual harm. But more importantly. What I did there was I gave him the message, not by saying, take your jacket, not those words, but the message I was giving him was, I don't trust that you know what you need. I don't trust that you can handle it. If you make a decision that isn't the best decision. And I'm the one that knows everything about everything. And so what that does is it communicates. I don't trust you. I don't trust that you can trust your body. I don't trust that you know what you need. And, and obviously Little kids don't totally do that yet, but we want to be laying the groundwork for that. It would have been so much better for me to say, okay, I'm taking a jacket and you know, you can take one if you'd like, or okay, if you get cold, then I'll snuggle you or something like that. Like who cares? So I think lots of times when we say, be careful, be careful. And my kids actually called me on this one time they were like, mom, you think everything is life and death and you think everything is dangerous. So we just don't listen to you. And I lost my voice with my boys because I was always like, be careful, that could break. Don't go on there. And um, it's so important that instead, obviously things that are risky and dangerous and could hurt them, we need to immediately put a stop to or prevent. But again, those were much more my fear instincts in the moment. And, And it's so much better to say, So instead of saying, don't go up there, don't climb up there, that's too high to say more like, wow, that's really high, pay attention to your body and decide what you think will be safe. And maybe then you're, you're in proximity where you can make sure that they're, you know, that they're safe, but we want to give them opportunities to take risks that do not have fatal, serious, or long lasting consequences whenever we can.
0: Yeah, and I think when we don't, we then are, it's like a battle against interceptive awareness that one of our eight sensory systems, right? The like internal feelings of what's happening for me inside. And we talk in tiny humans, big emotions about how crucial interception is for the connection to, um, emotion processing and, and doing any, really any work with emotions is first noticing, like, what do I feel in my body? How does it show up? And when we, when when that adult in our life is saying, actually, this is more important, we, we stop learning how to listen to that. And what we hear is, oh, maybe actually they know what's right for me. And I want to do the opposite. I want to help them tune into what am I feeling in my body? And I think what's tricky here are looking at things like potential hormonal imbalances, especially with research coming out in specifically with kid, kids with ADHD. And different dopamine levels that yep. they might be dopamine seeking and thus leading them to some unsafe physical choices um, because of that imbalance. And so just want to acknowledge that like it there, I think it's more complex and complicated than simply like help them listen to their internal body, which is. Uh, I don't want folks to take what I just said as like, all right, I'm just going to have that happen because I think it can be more complex than that. But that is like my overarching goal is for them to first tune into what is happening inside for me. And I, I want there to be a difference between, you know, if if Sage is running into the street, I want to go and pick him up and I want my tone to change and I want him to hear like that is not safe. Like there isn't a try it out and get hit by a car and see how that works out for you. You know, like that's not, and I want him to experience fear in that moment and inside to, to have that like kind of signal go off. Right. And in order for that to happen, I can't have that same reaction when he's two rungs up on the ladder at the playground, right? right? Like, otherwise he won't differentiate between those two and either everything will be scary or nothing will be scary. And so for me, like, that's the work is in my tone. In fact, small sidebar, we've been talking a lot in our house about kindness and different ways kindness shows up. Sometimes kindness is walking away, you know, sometimes kindness is helping somebody. Sometimes kindness is um, taking space to play by yourself, you know, like all these different ways that it shows up. The other day he was doing something that wasn't safe and my tone shifted and he said, mama, be kind. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is one of the ways that I'm kind. One of the ways that I'm kind is helping you learn when something could really hurt your body for real. Perfect. and he was like just like sat with that for a little bit it was so funny mom be kind as my tone shifted <laughs> yeah that. so good well, I think
1: you know I think what you're saying is crucial I remember one time my son we were at the beach and he started you know like running away from the car into the parking lot and I just I just yelled no and I grabbed him you know kind of firmly and I said don't ever do that again. That is dangerous. That could hurt your body. And he just started sobbing Mm -hmm. and I held him and I calmed him and my, and myself down. And I just took some deep breaths with him. And I said, I know that was really scary when I yelled and you heard my scary, you heard my voice and you, um, and you felt me grab your body. I know that was scary but that's because it was so dangerous. So it's really, you know, it's and 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 what if I what if I screamed and yelled and started like berating him and I handled it really badly? Like I, yeah. I still feel good about the way I handled it in this circumstance. I yeah. certainly have that I don't. Um, but even if I don't, I'm gonna, in either case, we want our children to, we are let me say it this way. We are meaning makers for our children. Yes. And so that was like, you know, that was a different tone and it was a different experience. And I had to help him make sense of it, just like you did with your son. And you were giving these nuances. And, and I think it's so hard because, you know, for children, the way they learn information is, you know, like when you first teach, like you you teach dog and they see like a head and four legs and furry and a tail, they're like dog. And then they see a goat and they're like dog. Um until it until it becomes specialized, everything are generalized, right? Um, and I think we we are meaning makers for them around our implicit messages, like I don't trust you. Um, and we're meaning makers around how much risk um response we're giving in those moments. And there should be degrees of that. And and our children should feel afraid at times and they should mm-hmm. feel anxious at times, and we should too, when it's def- when it's appropriate, when it's yeah. what our nervous systems are supposed to do. And I think um, you know. One of the ways that we can be that we need to be really thoughtful is that you know we know that anxiety and depression are really really high across the world, um, not only in our kids and adolescents, but in in grownups too. If you tend to be an anxious parent, a parent who I mean, if you tend to be a parent who is on the anxious side or who really truly struggles with anxiety, this is going to be even more challenging for you. And I want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, to get the support you need. Sometimes medication can make a huge difference in the parent you want to be. Um, Psychotherapy combined with it is an even more powerful um, combination, particularly if you have a trauma history, like doing our own work is so important because we are meaning makers for our kids. And it's hard to modulate our own fear and anxiety and risk response if our nervous system is on high alert all the time. It's really almost impossible to do without some help and support. Um, And I think one other thing I, I wanna talk about is as a parent, We absolutely should be and people often because of my books and stuff, they they put me in the what's what people someone has labeled the gentle parenting camp.
0: Yeah, Um, and
1: and I'm not I don't really claim that because same um, that sounds passive and weak and unboundaried um, and boundaries and limits and expectations that we clearly communicate to our kids help them feel safe. Um, They make us predictable and the brain hates unpredictability um, because it means potential threat. Um, So I think it's super important that we um, think about how we can do safety-based messaging. So I guess let me, I should, like, I don't know what to call it. Mona Della Hook and I have talked about, like, maybe we call it responsive parenting or respectful parent I don't know what we call it but anyway
0: I really um, dig respectful of the like all of them like that's the one I feel most connected to like yeah I have respect for you as a human
2: yeah
0: and I want to move through this in a with respect in our relationship yeah
2: no one told us the truth about parenthood why this is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here there is a lot to unpack I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about
0: becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.
1: Yeah, and if I I do say like gentle parenting, I would be like, with me still in charge. Like, our kids need us to be in charge. They do. They need to be in charge. Um, And then as they get older, we give them more opportunities to practice being in charge of some of their own domains of autonomy and things like that. Okay, so we can give the same boundary and limit, fear-based or safety-based. So I did a lot of this during the pandemic where I was saying, look, Because kids generalize in how they learn. If we're like, that's dangerous, that's dangerous, that's dangerous. We can't go here because it's not safe. If we go there, grandma's going to get sick. And we were giving so much fear based messaging. Kids can generalize that. And we're seeing a lot of anxiety coming out of this time. So I want to, I'm a huge fan of um, Mona Delahook and Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory where we're, we really ought, ought to always be thinking about cues of safety. We wanna be giving cues of safety to our kids so that they have that so that they can take appropriate risks like we were talking about. But let, let's give a hand-washing example. Okay, so I can say to my kid, they come in from the playground, they come home from school, I always want them to wash their hands. So I can say, wash your hands, you've got germs all over you, that playground, like you know kids were, like go wash your hands, your hands are dirty and we don't want anyone to get sick. Or I can say, hey, go in and wash your hands. We want your hands to be squeaky, squeaky clean so we can stay healthy. It's the same boundary. But what I'm doing is I'm giving my kid an implicit message of I'm going to keep you safe and healthy as best I can versus I'm I'm, I'm trying to keep all the dangers out. Right. So it's a really Mm -hmm. different meaning around the same boundary because language matters. It matters a lot. So, okay. So what do we do? How do we get our kids to build these critical thinking skills to to process all of these things. Well, we have to mirror the same thing in what we're teaching them to do. So like, for example, if I want my kid to pause before reacting, I want them to pause and act instead of react. Mm -hmm. I have to do that too, as much as I can, which means unless it's really dangerous, pausing and even maybe externalizing the process out loud with my kid to say, hmm, that seems really high. Let's think about this. Okay. So you really want to go up there. Hmm. I'm not sure. What do you think? And we're really giving them an opportunity. What we're trying to do is slow things down and create a pause and a space, which hopefully then would generalize to lots of other things as well. So we really want to slow things down to pause. Um, and one of the best ways we can do that is through the whole idea of self-regulation. Mm-hmm. And so self-regulation gets built by having practice going from dysregulated states back into regulated states. So when your child is tantruming, falling apart, um reacting over you know reacting or overreacting, if we come in and co-regulate with our calm um Connected presence. And we say, it's so hard. I'm right here with you. And we hug them if they want to be hugged. Um, we just stay near and don't touch them if that's their sensory preference, whatever it is. But really, it's the idea of being available and showing up in that moment um, and co regulating. And what happens is, you know, I, I often have parents say, So you want me to like give them attention when they're being bad and throwing a fit? <laughs> You're going to reinforce that bad behavior. I say, No, I'm giving their brain a rep of going from a dysregulated state back into a regulated state. And that's how they learn to self-regulate is through co-regulation. And it takes a long time to self-regulate. In fact, a lot of adults aren't so good at it either. Um, So (laughs) regulation, and then we also wanna give them opportunities to to, um, the way they all, so it's not just moving back from dysregulation back to regulation, but also to use tools and strategies to, keep themselves regulated so that they don't go to that state. And we do that by modeling it. Um, so if we're if I'm about to yell and I'm really frustrated, I might put my hand on my chest and belly and take a long deep sigh with my exhale longer than my inhale, which is one of the quickest things we know to calm down our nervous systems. It's called the physiologic sigh. We've known about it since the thirties. Um, but it's this, and I might even say out loud, I need a minute to calm down my body so I can talk with you and be the parent I want to be in just a minute. So I might even say it out loud. We might say, oh, I have a lot of energy in my body. I'm going to move my body to get some of that energy out, or I'm feeling really angry. I'm going to calm my body down before I talk to you. So we can even model that, and then we can teach them tools like breathing, like singing, humming. We know that vibration of those vocal cords helps regulate the nervous system. Being in water or near water um, is a really great way to do that. Um, listening to music, movement, laughter releases a lot of nervous system arousal. We have all kinds of tools we can we can teach our kids about what works for them, but we really want to slow things down and really focus more on self regulation because self regulation is a huge part of. Decision making um, and pausing before action.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's key here. What um for takeaways for folks when we're looking at risk management, the ability to do that, the ability to say, like, what is the ROI here? Right. Like, what is the potential return for me? Is it worth it? Is or what's the potential risk? Is that worth it? For them to be able to kind of do that um, assessment. They have to be in a regulated state to do it. And so I think it's so key here, that focus on regulation and the note of you're really just lengthening for myself. This saying things out loud is such a helpful part of this process because it like, just give, it buys me time. It also lets my child hear like a little bit more, right? So when he he his favorite drawer in our house is the sharp things drawer of um, naturally and I pretty early on he was 15 18 months and I was like I'm gonna teach him about the things in the sharp things drawer rather than playing this game seven thousand times a day where I'm like that's not safe it's not safe we can't play in the sharp things drawer I was like I'm going to teach him how to use these tools and utensils um I would love to say for his development, but really it was for me of like, this is going to make <laughs> my life easier <laughs> if yeah. he has safety awareness around these things. And so we started, we're like, at first he would he would say like, want to play in the sharp things. And I had to, as I was pulling, we have like a learning tower that he can stand in that goes up to as high as the sharp things drawer. And uh, as I was pulling the learning tower over, I would be vocalizing like, okay, I'm going to calm my body down so that I can help you learn about things in the sharp things drawer so that we can know how they work and help keep you safe. And I would literally say that out loud as I was pulling his learning tower over because it was, for me, helpful to be like, that's what's going on here, Alyssa. Like, we got to calm so that you can help him learn about these things. And I started with like, all right, I'm going to take a chunk of them out. And we started with learning with a few. And then as he got the hang of the pizza cutter and what this knife does or whatever, then we added in the zester and just got to like add more of the sharp things in. And now I could go pee or be in the other room and he can navigate the sharp things drawer. And yeah, really helpful to be honest, like really helpful, Um, especially with a second one coming where I was like, It's not a game I want to have to play. And if he has any of my DNA, like... If you set a boundary for me, I'm like, great. I cannot wait to push it. Like, I <laughs> have never met a boundary that I was like, oh wow, lovely to follow. Um, and so I was like, if if he's got any of my DNA, he's gonna do this. He's gonna get up to the sharp things door at some point. Um, but verbalizing that in route for me is really calming. Um, and then when he was in there, and it's like, all right, we, yeah, he's got knives and whatever at his disposal on, before I opened it up, we would, I would talk about like, what are some things we should know before we open up this drawer? And how do we navigate it? And then we would start with one thing at a time and he wanted to learn about them. And we went through like how to use them. Um, And for me with risk management, that just like is so key in the regulation component is for my self-regulation. And I think so often with kids we react and then we're in this dysregulated state. And then we end up in that cycle, right? Where they, their nervous system fires off of us and we have mirror neurons just flooding us. And really being able to find that pause, I think is the true work and so freaking hard to do. It's a practice.
1: It really is. And I think, you know, this fits in so much with the lens that, Dan and I wrote about in No Drama Discipline, which is, you know, our ultimate goal, the whole point of discipline is to raise children who become Um, self-disciplined. And the way they get there is through teaching and skill building and lots of reps. And so, you know, I think what you're, you know, kids using tools, like obviously with safety, you know, things in in place. And I think, you know, as kids get older too, we want to be asking the questions that we want them to be going through. Like for instance, I mean, even with your two and a half year old to say like, And it's so much about attachment too. If you're like, oh, are you wanting to climb up to the sharp things drawer? Like where you're really tuning into their mind and their intentions, like where they feel seen and known. You're like, oh, you really want to go check out what's in that drawer. Um, And then to say, okay, what are the things we need to think about? Right. And so, you know, I know like when my kids started making, wanting to make plans with friends, Mm
2: -hmm. they would be like,
1: can I go over to Jackson's house? And I'd be like, okay, what information do you think I'm going to need in order to make a decision about that, instead of saying, "Well, is his mom going to be home? How are you getting there? Are you walking, or is his mom picking you up? Uh, what time are you going? What time?" Instead of going through, which is exhausting mentally, and I have three of them, so it's like constantly. Um, and my husband has a lot of questions too, so um, I think is like I. So I would just train them. I was be like, "I can't make a decision until you give me all the information." And then you know sometimes they'd miss a thing or two, and then I'd ask. Um, but then I think even with your two and a half year old saying, "Okay, what do you think could happen?" You know, let's say they're wanting to do something and you're like, what do you think What do you think might happen if we do this? Let's imagine mm-hmm. it together. And what you're trying to do is link up their their future time travel, um mm-hmm. of, you know, thinking into the future, thinking into the past. what what happened last time you did that? So that's called mental time travel. It's a very sophisticated cognitive function that's part of prefrontal. And let me say that too, is any you know, if you think about everything the prefrontal cortex does, um, If we are building it in any way, so when I'm trying to develop empathy in my kid and I'm pointing out in the books that we're reading, hey, what do you think that bear feels? What do you think he might do next? And trying to help him get in the perspective of the bear, that's part of empathy building. If I'm focused on empathy building or I'm focused on um, decision making or on insight, like what does that feel like in your body when you get really angry or whatever it is? All of those reps in the prefrontal make all the other functions work well. So it's not just, you know, risk assessment, but I think asking our kid, what do you think might happen? Hmm, What do you think if it, if it kind of didn't go the way you wanted it to, what else could happen? And you're kind of thinking through, and I think it's important too, as we've been having a lot of this conversation around kids who are more attention, I mean, risk seeking, you might have a kid, if you're listening, who's, who's maybe too risk averse, And it runs more on the anxious side. And I would say what we know from the research on that is that if we have kids who are slower to warm up, who are more tentative, who um, shy away from newer things or have a hard time taking a risk, um, if you just force them full force into it, it's actually counterproductive. Like if you have a kid who doesn't want to make eye contact and hug grandma, I mean, that's a <laughs> whole other consent thing, but let's say, let me give an example from one of my kids, like my kid, um, five or six did not, he hated walking into, a, he loved sports, but if all, if we got there late or even right on time, walking into a group of other kids was too much for him. Sure. So what I learned, if I was like, you have to go. And if I forced him into it, His nervous system would have an overwhelming fear, anxiety response, and it would be counterproductive because he would have been like, that felt so terrible. I'm never doing that. Now I'm not going to soccer. Um, So then we have more oppositionality and all of that. So, but if you don't do anything, you're like, it's okay, sweetie, you don't have to go. Let's get back in the car. That further reinforces it too. And that's counterproductive. What the research clearly shows is that we keep their individual nervous systems in mind at that developmental stage. And we scaffold. So, so what? I'm, one thing I know is, okay, I need to get there earlier where there's just two or three kids. Mm-hmm. And then we walk up and then maybe the next, maybe in after a few weeks, we get there when there's four or five kids. Um, and we, we sort of scaffold or like he was a kid who would never walk into a birthday party. If there were, especially if there were any kind of performer or pinata or anything. Yeah. And I'm like, like pinata limb, like anything with limbs and you're hitting it and limbs are flying. Like if you get pinatas, get limb free pinata anyway. Um, He, so, but he, but I would say, okay, like he wouldn't want to go to the birthday party, but all his friends were there and I knew he Mm -hmm. wanted, he would have fun. And I wanted him to have a rep of that was a little uncomfortable, but I actually had fun. That was worth it. I had a good ROI on it. So I would say, well, let's just take five steps and then we'll wait and we'll see what happens. So we took, take five steps and then he could pause and he could observe. And I would say, how many steps do you think you can take now? I, I can take two steps. Okay. And so we you're really scaffolding it to give them an experience where you're pushing them a little bit outside their comfort zone. But in a way where it feels successful for them so mm-hmm. that's the other side of this is really assessing you know and what's the worst thing that could happen well you know you might feel a little uncomfortable do you want me to hold your hand as we walk up so we're really trying to scaffold without forcing or running away and the way they get practice tolerating these experiences is by having those experiences in a regulated nervous system. So we really want to give them opportunities to do that and to give them lots of opportunities to think through how things happen. And I wish we had time to get really more into the discipline philosophy that I like to talk about because it's very related because every discipline moment is an opportunity to reflect on what happened and what they can do differently next time. And that really gives their brain those reps of thinking through emotions, having insight, doing some problem solving, looking forward. And that's really powerful in terms of risk assessment, risk decision-making. And then I think the last thing um, I'll say about that, and then I want to say one more thing about parental fear, is that our kids are going to make mistakes. And the way we (laughs) handle mistakes matters a lot. Um, And the way we model our own mistakes, like if I burn something in the kitchen, or I break something, or I leave something somewhere, I'm like, Oh, well, now I get to be a problem solver, right? And so we want to model that kind of thing um, and kind of even be good humored about it as much as we can. And if we don't, then we go back and do some meaning making. Like, gosh, I got so frustrated about that, but. I realized after I calmed my body down, like it wasn't that big of a deal. I know I'm a good problem solver. Um, and I know you're a good problem solver too. We can ask our kids for their input on things. Hmm, you know, I know you're a really good decision maker. You're a really good problem solver. You think things through really well. Can you help me decide what we should do with your little brother today um, or whatever? So involve them in decision-making. I think in terms of our own parental fear, I think it's so important, again, that we ask that question. If we are, we is my decision to say no here or to stop a risk from happening, is that helping my child continue to grow and thrive and develop in the way they need to be? And I'm protecting them from something that is going to hinder their development. Or am I saying no because of my own stuff? And I am getting like, am I getting in the way of their development here or not? And I think that's a really important thing to reflect on and and really pausing and taking a breath and making sure that it's not something from the past or our own irrational discomfort that's getting in the way. It's just like what we've been talking about with kids. It's a parallel process for parents, which is we have to practice feeling uncomfortable with our child's autonomy because eventually they leave us and it's good practice for us. Um, to sit in the discomfort of not being in control of what we can be in control of. And that's part of our development as well.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the key takeaways for me in this conversation is that difference between discomfort and fear whether it's with the child who is feeling discomfort as they enter into this social situation and are working through the programming of like how do I go in how do I enter into this social play right like is it discomfort or fear and that those are different and that for us same thing like am I feeling uncomfortable is there discomfort here or is it fear and really getting curious with ourselves I think and that's I think that can only happen when we find that pause, it's the only time that we can do that um, work of getting curious in the moment and really helping kids build that skill. You know, you mentioned earlier the um, daughter dating when they're in the household versus out, and I, it really, like, for me, resonated with my approach to parenting of I am not always going to be there and what skills do I want him to have when I'm not? Um, And for me looking at like, what are the mini stones to those milestones, right? So if the milestone is he's 16 and at a friend's house and something comes up that doesn't feel right inside of him and he notices those, if that's my milestone of like that happens and he either asks me, for help or whatever our system is in place in that moment. How do I get there? And really for me, the getting there is helping him start to learn what those internal cues feel yeah, like. And, and to ask himself. Him, yes, exactly. Ask himself those right questions. And for him to start to practice the curiosity of, am I feeling uncomfortable or am I afraid because I'm not safe here? Yeah. And to start to differentiate those. And it takes practice and he's, gonna fail sometimes a bit and I'm gonna fail sometimes a bit absolutely um
1: I think too like one favorite favorite phrase that I've used probably one of my top five throughout my kids childhood is what's your plan
0: all the time all the time in my household
1: that's a good phrase so like and especially as they get older so like when they were younger I'd be like it's bedtime we're going to bed as they got older like middle school-ish I would be like, I know, you know, how important it is to get a good night's sleep. And I'm really militant about sleep. It's probably the only thing I'm militant about. Um, And I know, you know, it's important to get a good night's sleep. And I'm noticing what time it is. What's your plan for getting a good night's sleep tonight? Mm -hmm. And so I asked that question, although I'll say last night, my almost 17 year old, it was like really late and I got, I had already gone to bed. I got up to go to the bathroom and I noticed his light was still on and I was like, go to bed. Like I didn't, I didn't, yeah. use I don't those care those what your things. plan is anymore. Yeah. Go to bed after <laughs> bed. Um, so, um, but I think what's your plan. So if your kid's starting to climb up on something, or you notice that they're yeah. getting ready to take a more impulsive risk to just put your hand on them and be like, what's your plan? Mm-hmm.
3: Um,
1: and if they're like, I'm a you know, I, I don't know if I want to go to this camp. Cause I don't know if I'm going to have any friends there. Well, what's your plan when you get there? Um, how are you going to make friends? Let's talk about it. Um, and really kind of you know, that's just such a powerful phrase because you're saying, you're communicating to them. um, You've got good ideas and you can, you can figure this out and I'll help you. I'm here. I'll listen. I'll weigh in, but I think it's a really helpful phrase to just, instead of instinctively saying no, it might be a good replacement phrase to just keep in your pocket.
0: It's Also something I use my with my husband all the time when I'm like, Oh my God, in my head, I've now created this, like narrative or I've dreamt up what I think his plan is or isn't (laughs) and it's it's, right exactly it then like slows me down and when I can say like uh, what's your plan here you know we're getting ready to leave on a family trip and I sat down on Sunday and said hey what's your plan for packing all of us stuff and we got to dive into like yeah. What, what does his work week look like? Exactly. But it started with like, that is my, one of my huge phrases too. It just, it slows me down too. Um, what's your plan? Oh, I knew Tina, I said at the beginning, I feel like you and I (laughs) can hang out forever and it turns out it's true. Um, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us and for your wisdom, where can people find you? Learn more about you. Obviously, buy all your books; they're gold. I,
1: I'm really, I'm really, especially. I mean, I love the power of showing up. I actually, I, it's like children. I don't really have a favorite. Sure. Um, but I'm really, I really love um, the bottom line for baby because it's alphabetical and it's 65 topics that people get the most competing advice about, and it basically lays it out like pacifier use or co sleeping or whatever. And it, it is like here are the main schools of thought here's what the good science says. And then here's the bottom line. And then I really report as objectively as I can. So in about a third of the entries, I actually add in my own, like it's a note from Tina where I'm like, I didn't follow the suggestion or, and here's why I didn't, or I wish I had or whatever. So, um, it's a really, really great, um, gift for someone who is having a baby, um, or who has a kid, you know, under 18 months. Um, but, um, people can find me on at my website, tinabryson.com. And that's B-R-Y-S-O-N. And then I'm all over social media. The place I post the most is on Instagram. And my handle there is Tina Payne Bryson.
0: Awesome. And for folks who are tuning in, I would love for you to take a screenshot and tag Tina and I, and let us know what your follow-up questions are, what your big takeaways were. Come DM us. Let's have more conversation.
1: Absolutely. That'd be fun.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the transcript at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community over on Instagram hanging out every day with more free content? Come join us at seed.and.so. S-E-W. Take a screenshot of you tuning in, share it on the gram and tag seed.and.so to let me know your key takeaway. If you're digging this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We love collaborating with you to raise emotionally intelligent humans.
2: Oh, hey everybody.
0: It's us,
4: Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear, gone, poof? Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was